I have all the characteristics of a human being. Flesh, blood, skin, hair. But not a single clear, identifiable emotion, except for greed and disgust. Something horrible is happening inside of me, and I don't know why. My nightly bloodlust has overflowed into my days. I feel lethal, on the verge of frenzy. I think my mask of sanity is about to slip. Hello, and welcome to When We Were Young, the podcast that covers the exact era in pop culture where I have to return some videotapes was actually a plausible excuse. (laughs) I'm Chris, the podcast host whose need to engage in homicidal behavior on a massive scale cannot be corrected. I'm Becky, and I'm the podcast host who wants you to feed her a stray cat. And there is the idea of a Seth, some kind of abstraction. (laughs) But there is no real me, only an entity, something illusory. And though I can hide my cold gaze and you can shake my hand and feel flesh gripping yours, and maybe you can even sense our lifestyles are probably comparable, I simply am not there. Because I'm here, and you're listening to my recorded voice on this podcast. (laughs) We are ringing in the new year the only way we know how, with a nail gun and a chainsaw. And a little bit of the blow we have left over from Scarface. (laughs) After the highs of the holidays, now is the time of the year when we are asked to dispatch with the things we don't like and better ourselves, often with a balanced diet and rigorous exercise routine. (laughs) You might want to do a thousand crunches a day or resolve to take better care of your skin using a deep pore cleanser lotion, then a water-activated gel cleanser and a honey almond body scrub, followed up with an exfoliating gel scrub and an herb mint facial mask. Or perhaps you're looking to dress better in, say, a cashmere top coat, a double-breasted plaid wool and alpaca sport coat, pleated wool trousers, patterned silk tie, all by Valentino Couture, and leather lace-ups by Alan Edmonds. Or, if you're aiming to broaden your taste in music, I recommend Huey Lewis and the News' undisputed (laughs) masterpiece, Hip to be Square, a song so catchy, most people probably don't even listen to the lyrics. But they should, because it's not just about the pleasures of conformity and the importance of trends. It's also a personal statement about the band itself. Yes, when you're serious about sticking to your New Year's resolutions, you should always turn to your role models for inspiration. And what better role model than a wealthy, intelligent, successful, handsome investment banker on Wall Street like Patrick Bateman? So the guy has a few bad habits. Who doesn't? All of our tips and tricks for starting off your New Year in Patrick Bateman's image right after this. Back in the DeLorean, a Saturday morning Cause we both be cynical or radical But was it good cause we were young? Was it good cause we were dumb? Do we think it suddenly sucked? Now we're jaded and all grown up And there was so much that we loved Do we think it'll make the cut? Will it be a fantasy or will it be fun? A decades later will it still hold up? This is when we were young When we were young Our last episode was a cocaine-fueled, blood-spattered orgy of excess, featuring one of the big screen's most notorious antiheroes of all time, Tony Montana, in Brian De Palma's notorious and still hotly debated Scarface. As we discussed, Tony Montana has become a somewhat unlikely icon of masculinity and success, in spite of some glaring character flaws. In today's episode, we're turning our attention to another figure who has captured the hearts and minds of the masses, despite, or maybe because of, a handful of minor personality defects. Patrick Bateman, as portrayed by Christian Bale in Mary Heron's 2000 horror satire, American Psycho. 
And by masses, you mean men. And by I men, don't know. It's an equal <laughs> opportunity world. And by men, you mean Zoomers on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> that is what I always mean by men. <laughs> oh, no. Like De Palma's Scarface, American Psycho stems from a work that was already controversial before it was adapted into the work we're discussing today. It is based on a book by Brett Easton Ellis, published in 1991. The book was originally dropped by its publisher. An article in the Times decrying the book was titled, Snuff This Book, Will Brett Easton Ellis Get Away With Murder? To this day, in some countries, the book is only sold in shrink wrap to those over 18. <laughs> wow. The book has been found in homes of serial killers and mass shooters and blamed by its opponents for inspiring their crimes, often debunked shortly afterwards as having nothing to do with those crimes as those tend to happen. The book was not even published in a hardcover edition until 2012. So with all that controversy, naturally, someone had to make a movie out of it. <laughs> Producer Edward R. Pressman, known for the Brian De Palma film Sister and Phantom of the Paradise and Oliver Stone's Wall Street, many connections to our last yeah. episode, became obsessed, in Alice's words, with making a movie of the book that many, including Brett Easton Ellis, considered unadaptable. Johnny Depp was one of the first stars to express interest in playing the central mm. role of Patrick Bateman. Instead, he just became Patrick Bateman. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> allegedly. 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 Don't sue us, Johnny. <laughs> the wild herd of allegedly has just roamed through the podcast. <laughs> Next up, David Cronenberg was attached to direct with Brad Pitt as the star. Whoa. He'd have like a knife coming out of his stomach or something. <laughs> oh, Seth wants to see that movie. He wants to see that movie very badly. <laughs> yeah, I know. Wow. I, I know what you're going to be dreaming of tonight. Oh, man. Ellis <laughs> adapted his novel in a draft that ended with an elaborate musical sequence set to Barry Manilow's <laughs> Daybreak atop the World Trade Center. That would have been something, especially in the year 2000. Mm. <laughs> that would have been a bad choice in retrospect. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> After several other failed attempts at adapting the script and attaching directors, Mary Heron was approached hot off the indie I shot Andy Warhol. She said she'd do the project if she could take a stab at the script with co-writer Guinevere Turner. Heron had strong ideas about making the film more satirical and less moralistic and turning it into a period piece commenting on 80s consumerism. Heron was determined to have the then-little-known Christian Bale in the lead role. He was really little-known? I mean, he used to be a kid actor. Yeah, he was known for, like, he was in Empire of the Sun as a kid, but, like, as an adult, he had not really headlined anything. Oh, he had yeah. Been, he was in, like, Little Women as one of, the, like, the love interests. And, oh. you know, he was in movies, but he just wasn't a name actor. And he wasn't, like, a Maura Wilson. Like, he wasn't, like, a child actor known by name. Okay. I don't think. No, I don't think so either. The studio, Lionsgate, had different ideas and instead pursued Leonardo DiCaprio, hot off Titanic, offering him $20 million to star. Heron was opposed to the casting of DiCaprio and was fired, at which point Oliver Stone stepped in to direct oh, with Lordy. Leo as star. More connections to our last episode. Oliver Stone was a man who knew his way around an antihero, having written Scarface as well as directed mm. um, many, many men in bad behavior. <laughs> Reportedly, the feminist activist Gloria Steinem then intervened. 
taking Leonardo DiCaprio to a Yankees game to plead with him not to do this movie. Wow. She had already been like really vocally outspoken against the book for its depictions of violence against women. And she said that Leo was so popular with young girls that he d- she didn't want to see all these young girls flocking to his next oh. movie, which was then about like dismembering women. Huh. The hilarity is that he allegedly dates some of the youngest girls in Hollywood. I don't think it's allegedly. He allegedly. does it. He does it. <laughs> I'm just saying. Leo dropped out to do the beach instead. <laughs> Soon after, Gloria Steinem married an English entrepreneur named David Bale, father of four, including son Christian. Oh. What? The conspiracy is coming together. This is Inception. <laughs> Who doesn't want to see Inception starring Gloria Steinem? <laughs> <laughs> Bale still had to fight for the role, personally asking Ewan McGregor to turn it down. Whoa, and Ewan McGregor was supposed to be in the beach, but then Leo did the beach... What did Ewan do? What did he just take a year off? What did I, what happened did to Ewan? Star Wars The Phantom Menace. Oh. <laughs> look how that worked out. Wow. Choices were made all around. And George R. Binks was actually up for the role of Patrick <laughs> Bateman, so. We gotta end there. That's it. That's it. That's it. We're done. We're not gonna top that. We're not gonna top George R. Binks. Bale won the role only after Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, Vince Vaughn, and Edward Norton passed. <laughs> He accepted a paltry $50,000 in salary for the lead starring role of this movie. Heron also had to promise to fill the rest of the cast with big names, hence why Reese Witherspoon, Jared Leto, Chloe Sevigny, and Willem Dafoe are all co-stars. Jared Leto's a big name? He was off of My So-Called Life at the time. Like, he was a draw. As like a TV heartthrob. When was Requiem? Same year. Same year was Requiem. Okay, so he was... But he wouldn't have been known for that. He would have been known for... Okay. But he was in Fight Club. He was like hot and up and coming. Uh, He was up and coming. He wasn't like a big star. Yeah, I think he was known for TV and this was kind of around the moment that he started becoming a movie star. Okay. Christian Bale physically transformed himself for the role. Mary Heron basically like said, oh, Patrick Bateman would probably go to the gym, so you might want to start working out. <laughs> and uh, he did. She didn't know who she was talking to. <laughs> right. <laughs> he worked out very intensely and came back physically transformed. He also spoke in an American accent throughout production and creeped people out by staying in character. Of course. Many brands declined to be associated with the film for <laughs> Bateman's wardrobe and accessories, forcing the filmmakers to turn to many European companies. Because Europeans don't have morals. They don't don't give a shit. Filming in Toronto was also protested and several locations had to back out at the last minute due to public pressure. So there was a lot of scrambling around to like secure new locations. I don't understand. It's a movie. The protests were regarding one of the killers who they found like his book in his house. But then they like later realized it was actually like his girlfriend's book and he hadn't even read the book. (laughs) But like victims, the family or whatever were protesting. But yeah, I mean, it's kind of dumb. Well, and like looking for logic in moral panics, that's kind of a sucker's bet. The things that get blamed are always the things that are actually criticizing the thing instead of like the things that maybe should take more blame. Yeah, the, the misinterpretation goes in all directions. Yeah. American Psycho initially earned an NC-17 rating. For its violence? No, because of its threesome sex scene. Of course. 18 seconds was removed to gain an R rating. I watched the quote-unquote, like, unrated, restored version. Was there a camera in someone's butt? No. I think he was just, like, saying, like, put the camera in your butt. It was no different. It was no different. Editors note that is not a line from the movie. (laughs) Pretty sure that's a direct quote. 
American Psycho opened on April 14th, 2000. It grossed $34.3 million worldwide on a $7 million budget. So it was a modest hit. Okay. The reviews were polarized. (laughs) Kenneth Tron of the LA Times said, Promotional blather about its satiric thrust notwithstanding, the bottom line is that this film is a hundred minutes spent with an unpleasant, unmotivated, disconnected psychopath named Patrick Bateman, who enjoys hacking folks into pieces and storing body parts in a freezer, which is pretty much 100 minutes too many. While Alice's novel was criticized for being misogynistic, Bateman and his pals are so uniformly hateful and heartless, more like the Ripley of the Patricia Highsmith novel than the recent film, that American Psycho feels equally guilty of the opposite sentiment, man Hating misandry. I'm going to leave that there because that is quite a take. Yeah. <laughs> Richard Corliss of Time <laughs> magazine said, yes, this is also a comedy of murders. There are chainsaws and nail guns and a severed head cellophane in the fridge. But the carnage, like the sex scenes, is shot so pristinely that it becomes a nouvelle cuisine feast. This is a splatter film Martha Stewart could love. I don't know about that. But <laughs> yeah, I haven't asked Martha what her thoughts are. I think are. she would find it a bit gauche. <laughs> So I have two questions for you. What is your history with American Psycho and how many times have you been to Dorcia? <laughs> I was just there tonight. Oh, what'd you have? I had a reservation. Oh, wow. That, those are hard to come by. Yeah. I had an air of mousse with a pâté au foie gras compote. A la carte. A la mode. I had really no history of or awareness of American Psycho again until I was a freshman in film school. This was absolutely another of the posters that was available. I don't know if that was the case (laughs) for your year. Maybe it took another year for the market in American Psycho posters to saturate. Honestly, I think it did. I don't recall American Psycho posters my year. It wouldn't surprise me because it wasn't really my understanding that this was an immediate cult classic. It was not. Yeah, Yeah, but but I think it's definitely become one. And I think it had become one by around 2002 when I was starting school. And yeah, by that time, it was was very much part of the conversation among my new freshman film nerd friends. It wasn't a movie that I was super interested in watching, though. Just, like, from hearing how misanthropic that central character was. And at the time, I even, like, personally, I had a very misanthropic attitude toward the world. And I think for that reason, I kind of didn't want to have that reinforced in the movies and music and stuff that I that I took in. Um, So I kind of consciously avoided watching American Psycho. Uh, Later, I I did see it at some point. I don't really remember when, though. I do know it had been a very long time since I had last seen it. I remembered a lot of my friends really liking it, but I wasn't super interested. And I even loved Christian Bale as an actor in anything. But yeah, it just felt like a movie that had the wrong vibes. Becky? This came out in April of 2000, and I was really excited to see this movie because there was a female filmmaker. And at this point in my life, I already knew that I wanted to go to film school, and there weren't that many female directors making mainstream stuff. Especially stuff that had this kind of, like, offbeat sensibility. Oh, yeah. And by this point, I was already into, like, you know, Clockwork Orange, Goodfellas, things with, like, violence and crime and and things like that. So I was really excited for this. And so I was supposed to go to the junior prom with my best friend, Eddie, but our junior prom was canceled. And on the night that we would have gone to the junior prom together, 
we went to see American Psycho, and then we went to the Cup Coffee House <laughs> afterwards. Romantic. Yeah, we were just friends. Also, I was in love with him, but <laughs> it didn't work out. Um, <laughs> he was going to be my date, so he went out with me for this fun night. And I remember not liking the movie, and I was disappointed because I was ready to be like, yay, female filmmaker, you know, making like an R-rated bloody movie. But I didn't like it. And I remember us being at the coffee house and like just talking about the movie the whole time and our like complaints and stuff. I don't remember exactly what my complaints were, but I remember being disappointed. And I think that's the only time I've ever seen it. I've seen like clips here and there and there's been like, you know, memes and stuff. So a lot of the stuff in the movie was not too far in the past in my brain when I just watched it again. It has not been a movie that I've wanted to revisit. That is surprising. Yeah, I don't have a super specific memory of watching this movie. I think I probably like rented it after my freshman year because it was one of those movies that people discuss in film school. The movie did not really catch on for like about five years after it came out, like in a big way. But I think probably the people who appreciated it were people in film school, you know, exactly where we were that like would appreciate something that was kind of like an edgy satire that had a reputation for being explicit or kind of taboo in a way, much like Scarface in the last episode had yeah. had that. So, you know, I, it's one of those movies that I would have had to feel like I needed to see it myself. I think I enjoyed it at the time, but it wasn't a movie that like became a personal favorite or that I bought on DVD like early on. I now own it. I bought it a few years ago, mainly because it was one of the 4K movies that was out and there weren't a ton of them that I like didn't already own or that I actually wanted to buy. So I just like, I was like, I think I like this movie. Like I, I maybe had seen it one other time since then. So I bought it and had watched it like once or twice in the last few years. In general, like, I don't think I appreciated it at an early age because the themes of gender and materialism that are in the movie, the observations it makes are just not observations I had personally made as much in my own life. And, like, the themes definitely resonated with me more later on. So what did you guys think watching it now? I think this movie's kind of brilliant. It's weird in retrospect that I avoided it in the way that I did. I mean, I do understand now that I was not really in the right mental space to watch a movie like this. I think this movie delves more into American male psychosis than almost any other movie I can think of. I also think it is a more trenchant, incisive examination of capitalism and, and of capitalists especially in the context of the 80s onward when this movie is set. It's so much more cutting than almost anything else I can imagine and not just literally cutting. It is just really so brilliantly made, like formally. It's so clean, like all of the scenes are so cleanly structured. The writing of it is so good. I am an anti-fan of Brett Easton Ellis, but I think this movie was brilliantly adapted by Guinevere Turner and Mary Heron. And I appreciated so much more just Mary Heron's authoritative voice throughout all of this in the writing and direction. It feels like such a female perspective on a character like this, I think in a way that makes it much more impactful than it would have been. And also, I just felt the choice to lean into the comedy was so fucking brave. She didn't have to do that. She didn't have to approach making this movie in that way. But the commitment to that choice, the way it's pulled off, I think is kind of like a magic trick. 
it really does have some of the most brutal moments in it that I can never remember seeing in a film. Still, in every one of those moments, I'm transfixed. I can't look away. I need to see what he does next. I really think that Christian Bale's performance is right up there with some of the most committed performances I've ever seen in a film. Like, he embodies that character to a truly terrifying degree. (laughs) And he is a character who, like Tony Montana, does not change and, for the most part, knows who he is at the start, but his real crisis of confidence is not fully embracing the person that he knows he is, the mindless killing machine that he knows he is at his core. But even with all of that, I found the way that the movie balances his kind of trajectory as a serial killer with just injecting the sense of doubt and the sense that maybe all of this is just completely in his head. I think the movie pulls that off in such an interesting way that it makes it just that much more fun. It's not a whodunit movie, but a like, did he done it movie. <laughs> I found myself very pleasantly surprised by this movie, and I felt it like belongs in the company of the series Hannibal, was a TV series retelling of the Hannibal Lecter story. And now I can kind of see there's a lot of connective tissue between those things, and a lot of the same reasons I love the series Hannibal are some of the same things I love in this, where there's a completely unflinching approach to telling the story of an awful, hideous person. But at the same time, there's a lot of really dark and inventive and interesting humor in it and a lot of real insight into how gender roles work in our society and also just regular people's relationships, whether you're a serial killer or not. Becky, I'm curious what you were expecting of this movie yeah, I'm very in relation curious. to what your thoughts are now, but since you were not a fan when you first saw it. I went into this viewing thinking I'm not going to like it and I'm going to think it's badly made with like good performances. I'm glad I rewatched it because I came away with a much higher appreciation of this movie. I don't think that I understood satire at that age because I understood what comedies were, but I don't know if I understood the satire of this when I was 17. And I think that I really have benefited in the last years. <laughs> last two years. <laughs> yeah. Just like watching more movies and like becoming more, when you read a lot of books, you're well read. You're you well watched. Well watched when you watch a lot of movies and you, you know, just take in more and just live life. I liked it. I came away with a deeper appreciation for the details and thinking it was really well directed, really well acted by Christian Bale specifically, but also even some of the people surrounding him. It was funny. I mean, like, it's, yeah. a, it's a funny movie. It did leave me unsettled. Like, I felt like it did what it needed to do. Like, it was funny in the funny parts and it was deeply unsettling in the deeply unsettling parts. Yeah. So I think it was a success. Like, it actually makes me want to read the book. It makes me want to watch it again, now knowing what to expect and just like taking a deeper look. Once I read, and this was before I rewatched it, once I read that Christian Bell based his performance off of Tom Cruise, I was like, I can't unsee it. I can't unsee it. It's Tom Cruise. And there is a moment in his monologue of confessing things to his lawyer on the phone where he laughs like Tom Cruise. And I was like, that was literally Tom Cruise just like came onto the screen. <laughs> like, I did clock that. I can't unsee it. And that like 
for me just makes this movie even better. <laughs> just knowing the inspiration. God, he reminds me so much of him in this movie. I think like once you know it's a satire and not to be taken too seriously and you, and it's like a metaphor for capitalism, for male this, that, or the other, I think it's great. But I don't think that I was going into that at 17 when it was a new movie, like with any of that in my head. And so for me, it didn't work then, but I think it works now. Yeah, I mean, I think that was very much my experience watching it younger too. I was a little older than you and I think I liked it a little more than you did, but I still don't don't think that all of the themes resonated the way that they do now that I've thought about a lot of these things. And like, it's a specific kind of satire too. Paired with Scarface, like they're differently successful, but they're both the same kind of thing where they're both doing, like reveling in the thing that they also are ultimately kind of condemning. And also I think they're kind of more specifically angled satire where like, it's less of like a social satire of like satirizing all of society all at once. It's more just like the way that this one individual exceptional character's actions and their life are kind of a commentary on larger society. Yeah, and I, th- I think both characters are emblematic of America, like a certain segment of America or a commentary on America, and that's kind- they're kind of that personified. Yeah. And they both can easily be mistaken for the thing that they are satirizing, which tends to be my favorite kind of <laughs> satire now, where the lines are kind of blurry and you don't actually know where, like, if you're not watching closely, you can kind of miss it and just be like, oh, this is exploitative. You can easily watch this movie, especially if you just come into certain scenes and be like, oh God, this is a terrible grindhouse movie that hates mm-hmm. women. Like you could easily think that watching it in isolation if you don't kind of get what the overall movie is. And some of that goes to how many movies you watch in your life or like what movies you watch or what books you end up reading. Like, and it's not to say that people's reaction to the film when they don't have that base of knowledge is like illegitimate, but like part of understand fully understanding what the movie intends requires that. Yeah, so I also think this is like a really brilliant satire. I think it only gets sharper with age. Maybe it's my age, but I think maybe also the movie's (laughs) age. I think maybe we're both aging wonderfully. (laughs) We all are. We all are. Let's be honest. It's a great satire of both like masculinity and of consumer culture. Business and like all kinds of. Yeah. Like all of it. I think what works about it is that if you remove the murder, the title would still work because (laughs) Patrick Bateman is a psycho in the way he works out and takes care of his skin and dresses and talks about music. And talks about business, like the business card scene. Business cards? Yeah. The business card scene (laughs) is what I remembered most. And I remember liking that. I don't think I really got it, but I remember that I liked when I was 17. But like that really nails the satire is that scene of like business cards being like and him like growing jealous. That like repeated theme of it throughout the whole movie. And also like this time I I, like really I rewatched at least that scene a couple of times. There's a sound effect that they use that's almost like unsheathing a sword Mm -hmm. or like flipping open a switchblade or something. Oh, it literally is. And I I watched the commentary and that's they said that during the scene. Hmm. Really? Okay, because like this time watching it, I was like, it felt like Ocean's Eleven almost. Or like it felt like leaping into a really tense action sequence that's like tightly staged and like they're just literally showing each other their business cards. But that was like, that really stuck with me this time. What do you think? Whoa. 
Very nice. Look at that. Picked them up from the printers yesterday. Good coloring. That's bone. And the lettering is something called Cillian Braille. It's very cool, Bateman, but that's nothing. Look at this. That is really nice. Eggshell with Romalian type. What do you think? Nice. Jesus. <laughs> that is really super. How did a nitwit like you get so tasteful? <laughs> I can't believe that Bryce prefers Van Patten's card to mine. But wait. You ain't seen nothing yet. Raised lettering. Pale Nimbus. White. Impressive. Very nice. Mm. Let's see Paul Allen's card. Well, because the filmmaking makes it feel like the stakes of that scene are so high and that everyone yes. is like pulling out their gun or their dick. Their bas- dicks. They're basically <laughs> yeah. like, comparing dick size and that. But it's true. Like there are people who care this much about these like ridiculous things. What I like about that scene too is that Patrick Bateman does not have the best business card. You would think, oh, he's he's the psycho. He's the one that's going to take it the farthest. But he doesn't. There's other people that are one-upping him, at least in that respect of the business card. So it's like he constantly feels like insecure about his masculinity. And that was like one of the first ways in which I drew like a big distinction between Patrick Bateman and like Tony Montana specifically, you know, because watching these back to back, this movie makes Patrick Bateman wrong. (laughs) It makes him weak. Mm -hmm. It, It actually tests him in ways that Tony Montana never really seems to be tested. Yeah. And I think like all of that stuff about Patrick Bateman, where he's getting ready for the morning or obsessing over things like it's very relatable even if it's like very exaggerated it's like it's either things that you kind of recognize in yourself like maybe you care a lot about what you're wearing or your skincare routine whatever or you know people around you you like know people that like care a lot about these things it's in an exaggerated form but it still is very human and so then when you go so far to show that he's actually a totally sadistic serial killer it adds this layer that makes the narcissism frightening in addition to being funny. But it makes you also think about like the primal origins of some of these behaviors and that Mm -hmm. these are kind of the most extreme ends they can reach, but how all human behavior is on this spectrum and how we're all on this spectrum. And he maybe is at a very extreme end of it that most of us would never like to even go anywhere near, but that we are on that same spectrum with him because we all, we do obsess about whether it's, music you know we have said things like his huey lewis and the news things on this podcast like going into like oh i think this album actually represents you know his isolation from childhood or you know like we analyze things on that level he's been compared to elvis costello but i think huey has a far more bitter cynical sense of humor hey albert's yes alan why are there copies of the style section on the place? Do you, do you have a dog? A little chow or something? <laughs> no, Helen. Is that a raincoat? Yes, it is. In 87, Huey released this for their most accomplished album. I think their undisputed masterpiece is Hip to Be Square. A song so catchy, most people probably don't listen to the lyrics. But they should, because it's not just about the pleasures of conformity and the importance of trends. It's also a personal statement about the band itself. Hey, Paul! Ah!
And that specific scene is when he's about to kill somebody. So that part of the scene is not relatable to us. But like what he's saying is exactly the kind of stuff we say here because we want to share our ideas about pop culture. And we think we have something to say about pop culture <laughs> that like is, a you know, it sounds bad, to say, but like that is above the the, the masses, you know, right. that, that we have some kind of insight into pop culture that not everyone has or that, you know, people should listen to us talk about it. And that's how Patrick Bateman feels. So I, I love that this movie forces us to relate to him even while showing his behavior as so despicable throughout the movie very early on I mean he's despicable and yet you're constantly kind of drawn in and be like oh I see myself here oh I don't see myself there but I do see myself here and that kind of really uncomfortable relationship we have with like recognizing our behavior in him and and our world in him even if it's not us but just like the kind of materialism that is part of our culture like wanting to be in the best restaurants wanting to have the nicest business card like that might not be exactly our world but we know that world and we get those messages that say like oh you should want to be elite you should want to be the best you should want to achieve these things. And so whether or not we are living in that kind of a world, like we we recognize it. And, and, and that's what makes the horror of it when it does come so frightening is that because it feels like it's actually a part of all of our world and, and it goes by so kind of unnoticed in this movie. That's why I describe this movie as brilliant because that is such a tight fucking tightrope to walk. And the fact that it's like the same thing is fueling both the comedy and the satire of it and the horror of it and that it does both of those things simultaneously and equally effectively in a way I'm kind of grateful now that I didn't see it when I was younger because I certainly don't think I would have fully appreciated it like I did now what I found really interesting is that when you see killers usually in movies and they're living like double lives, the public one is like, I'm the police chief or I'm, you know, the good neighbor. They're going out of the way, like Gus Fring and Breaking Bad, where he's like, I'm a community member and I'm a businessman. Right, and there's that huge contrast between... Yeah, this, there's no contrast. He's a monster. <laughs> he's misogynistic, like exec, like power thirsty executive who thinks he's better than everyone. He doesn't really hide being a monster, but he's, I think that's why this movie is not really about Patrick Bateman. It's about the industry and the society that a serial killer could hide within and nobody would be the wiser. Yeah. Like people would just accept him because everyone's like that. And he's just such an obvious piece of shit outside of being a murderer, but nothing happens because he has status and money. And it's, that's what the movie is comment commenting upon. It's like not really about Patrick Bateman. It's about like how he can hide in plain sight. Yeah. Like the other characters are not as sadistic as him, but they are also pieces of shit, mostly. Like, uh, the, especially the men that he's... Yeah. You know, they're all, they're kind of all equally shallow and vain and disdaining of anyone, like, beneath them. Barely acknowledging the existence of other people. Yeah. Like, they... The men in this movie constantly call every other man by the wrong name all the time. Yeah. They're all interchangeable. Exactly. And Patrick often will say something like, I'm into murders and executions to someone's face, and they don't hear him. He said he was in murders and acquisitions. You're not confused, are you? No, not really. Gorbachev is not downstairs. Karen's right. Gorbachev's not downstairs. He's a tunnel. Ask me a question. So what do you do? 
I'm into uh, oh, murders and executions mostly. Do you like it? Well, it depends. Why? Well, most guys I know who work in mergers and acquisitions really don't like it. So, where do you work out? You think I'm dumb, don't you? You think I'm dumb, you think all models are dumb. No, I really don't. That's okay, I don't mind. There's something sweet about you. Like, he's constantly kind of confessing what he's done or saying, I am a psychopath. He drops facts about serial killers. All the clues are there. There's the scene where he's, like, taking the bloody sheets to the laundromat. Yeah, (laughs) cranberry juice. (laughs) Or stuffing the victim in a trunk. And and his friend just asks him, oh, where'd you get that bag? Like, (laughs) all the clues are in front of everyone's faces and no one is seeing it. And that's kind of the, like, funny and horrifying thing about the movie is that both, like, he's kind of begging to... To get caught in ways and like he's not careful he's not there are many like times when what he's doing like in a if it were taking place in like normal world like oh someone would see this someone would call the police but like the movie is really making this like commentary that everyone is kind of blind to this and and because of his status because he's like this wealthy white male kind of at the top of the food chain like no one holds him accountable no one even like thinks to hold him accountable really like there's the tension of the cop that's played by Willem Dafoe where it's like okay maybe this guy's gonna get it and like ultimately like that doesn't really go anywhere either because he's just on this level that is unaccountable to anything and that and that is really what the satire is is that someone in his position like can do anything and obviously most of those people are not actually murdering people but like the commentary is that they're doing harm and that they're embodying this sort of soulless capitalist excess thing and are hurting people in a way just not in this way they hurt people through their business model yeah they kill people through the business that they do exactly and so this is just like an extreme form of that but it is commenting on that and just taking that to a real extreme What I interpreted was that Patrick Bateman actually has like a conscience that he knows this is wrong because he is constantly trying to tell the world what he's doing and no one is listening. And it's almost like he's in purgatory where he can't get the catharsis of punishment. He knows that it's wrong and he is constantly saying, I'm a murderer, I'm a murderer, and he is never getting punished for it. And I think that's his arc in this movie. Yeah. Because I think he is in purgatory for most of it. But I think by the end, he's like, I'll like reign in hell. (laughs) Like, I think he's he recognizes and finally internalizes that. Yeah, I just find it to be a very complicated story and character. Like, there's a lot going on where you think, oh, he's just a psychopath. But I think Tony Montana is a psychopath. Psychopath is not that interesting. What I found with Tony Montana is that there wasn't really anything underneath the surface. And in American Psycho, you might think there's nothing underneath the surface, but there's a lot going on in terms of him feeling desperate, him feeling insecure, him trying to have have a comeuppance. He knows what he's doing is wrong and just never finding that and his inability to like get that catharsis. Like I just found that really interesting that there really was something going on with his character, even though on the surface he's a psychopath. Yeah, I also found it interesting how many characters like sort of see things and just it doesn't register like Jared Leto in the scene where he comes to Patrick's apartment. Mm -hmm. There's a newspaper on the ground. 
And then he sees Patrick dressing in like mm-hmm, a, a very raincoat. creepy raincoat. <laughs> Translucent raincoat. Yeah. And he doesn't save himself. He doesn't run because like, A, the assumption is Patrick is this wealthy, successful guy. He's not, mm-hmm. you know, like a danger. But I think also like the movie is kind of saying something about how like we don't see the danger that we're in as part of this like capitalist society that like we're all sort of in this like deadly trap that we don't often recognize for what it is. And we're captive prey, but can't see that until it's way too late. Mm-hmm. And also, like, the people who do that, like, from Jared Leto's position, are so completely just absorbed into themselves that they can't see it when another one of those predators comes after them. The scene with the homeless man, which is the first scene that we see Patrick actually killing someone, I thought that was a really pointed way to kind of introduce us to this idea. If you're so hungry, why don't you get a job? I lost my job. Why? You're drinking. Is that why you lost it? Insider trading? (laughs) Just joking. Listen, what's your name? Al. Hmm? Speak up, come on. Al. Get a goddamn job, Al. You got a negative attitude. That's what's stopping you. You gotta get your act together. I'll help you. You are so kind, mister. You're kind. You're a kind man. It's okay. Please. You gotta tell me what to do. You gotta help me. I'm so cold. I'm hungry. (laughs) You know how bad you smell? You reek of shit. Do you know that? (laughs) Al. I'm sorry. Just a... I don't know. I don't have anything in common with you. A lot of the talk around this movie and and the book before it is around like his violence to women, which Mm -hmm. is definitely there. But like, it's not just about that because it's obviously about anyone that he has power over, which is almost everyone, you know, in the position that he is. But having it be this homeless man who's completely vulnerable, there's no advantage for him to do this. There's no like with Jared Leto, like you can kind of say like, oh, well, he's, you know, maybe trying to get like the account that he had or, you know, whatever. Like there's like reasons he might do that. But like the first kill that we see him do is so brutal and so unnecessary. And he does it while, like, spouting these, like, Reagan talking points about how the man is just too lazy to get a job. I mean, it it just, like, really sells what this movie is, which is basically that capitalism doesn't care about certain people. Capitalism prioritizes certain people, and those people are so cold and indifferent to this homeless man. I mean, not only that, but like capitalism at the systemic level, at the level of its like outer effects, targets certain people for eradication, Mm -hmm. like targets people to be eliminated, whether that's through imprisoning them or whether that's through totally privatizing housing so that a lot of people have to go homeless. It's crazy that this movie presents all of that and goes to the lengths it goes to to criticize them, but that still feels like an organic part of the movie and it doesn't feel like someone's beating you over the head with a message. I want to shout out some shots that I really liked. Hell yeah. The shot of him peeling his face off 
Mm-hmm. Face off <laughs> is just one classic iconic shot yeah. to show the inner character, the outer character. It was just, I felt like that was a perfect image. Yeah. And there's a lot of things that are not so in your face like that one. There's a shot inside the taxi with Patrick and his girlfriend or his date or whatever. They're behind the partition of the taxi and she is clear, like, like the partition is open where she is, but he is blurry. Mm-hmm. That was an accident, by the way. Uh, well, Mary Heron said in the commentary. It fucking worked. <laughs> but she loved it. When she saw it, she was like, oh, that's yeah. absolutely... Like, she pointed out the same thing you just said. Yeah. yeah. There's just a lot of that in this movie where it's just, like, a beautiful movie. Like, no wonder there's, like, gifts of Christian Bell jumping rope that, like, go around that I just see, like, once in a while. Beautifully staged, beautifully shot. I mean, I even literally love the opening credit sequence. I think the opening credit sequence is genius. Like, very Dexter. Very pre- Dexter. Pre-Dexter. Right. It starts with what looks like falling drops of blood against a white backdrop until you see that it's actually plates of very fancy haute cuisine being mm-hmm. prepared and served to a bunch of NYC yuppies. Same cinematographer as Pulp Fiction. Oh. So there you go. I found his relationship with Reese interesting that we never got like more intimate moments of them. Like I'm just Because I don't think they had any. Yeah, but I'm just like, I want to know more about <laughs> this yeah. relationship. Touchy touchy. I'm sorry I brought up the wedding. Let's just avoid the issue, all right? Now, are we having coffee? Fucking serious. It's fucking over us. This is no joke. Uh, I don't think we should see each other anymore. But your friends are my friends, and my friends are your friends. I really don't think it would work. Something. I know that your friends are my friends, and uh, and I've thought about that. You can have them. Really serious, aren't you? Yes, I am. What about the past? Our past? We never really shared one. You're inhuman. No, I'm in, I'm in touch with humanity. Evelyn, I'm uh, sorry. I just uh, you're not terribly important to me. Your friends are my friends. You can't break up with me. It was intriguing. Like, they never had, like, a sex scene. You know? Like, it's really like, does he even know her? Okay. Which I think was the point. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that's the thing. And I think the movie accurately presents the degree to which they know each other. Right. I think it like kind of hues back to like old school, like arrangement where it was almost like he's from a good family and she's from a good family yeah. and they'll get together. And that's kind of what their union their feels like. They're both rich. Yes. And it feels kind of plausible that they wouldn't even be that intimate. But, like, he's, like, sleeping with all kinds of other women as well. And she doesn't know because they're never together. Like, Yeah, they're only at, like, dinner. Like, yeah. And that's it. They see each other, like, once every two weeks or something, it feels like. Maybe she's a serial killer. Maybe they're match made in heaven. I love the jokes they make about silly food dishes at restaurants. Mm-hmm. Um, there are like a million lines about it, which I will drop in audio here. Uh, but one of my favorite was the mud soup and charcoal arugula are great here. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah, there's another scene where Bateman monologues about world hunger and stopping apartheid at, at a restaurant. <laughs> this is very early in the movie, but like it feels even more relevant now than it did then. He's just kind of spouting these like meaningless liberal cliches, which yes. feels very much like 
corporations spewing morals that they actually don't care about or or live by. And, and also feels a lot like, you know, when Deborah Messing and Gal Gadot will make a video where they're singing like Imagine <laughs> or some shit to try to cure coronavirus or whatever. It like it really and again, it's like it's it's really easy. There are a million and one ways that you can make shitty, unfunny satire of that. But like this movie finds one of the few really dead on effective and sharp and funny ways of doing it. Tell me, Stash, do you think Soho is becoming too commercial? Yes, I read that. Oh, who gives a rat's ass? Hey, that affects us. Oh, well, what about the massacres in Sri Lanka, honey? Doesn't that affect us too? I mean, do you know anything about Sri Lanka? How like the Sikhs are killing like tons of Israelis over there? Come on, Bryce. There are a lot more important problems than Sri Lanka to worry about. Like what? Well, we have to end apartheid for one, and slow down the nuclear arms race, stop terrorism, and world hunger. We have to provide food and shelter for the homeless, and oppose racial discrimination, and promote civil rights, while also promoting equal rights for women. We have to encourage a return to traditional moral values. Most importantly, we have to promote general social concern and less materialism in young people. <laughs> Patrick, <laughs> how thought-provoking. I love how subtly, like, the movie, like, draws us into the fact that he is a murderer because, like, like the first time, the f- I think the actual first victim is when he just, like, sees a woman on the street and says hello to her. And that's it. And then you cut to the scene with the bloody sheets. And, like, you can kind of infer what happened, but you don't actually know that he's a psycho until that later homeless man scene. Isn't it at the bar is the first thing he really does? He tells the bartender woman, like, I you're a fucking ugly bitch or yeah. something like that. Yeah. And I want to play with your blood or something. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it, like it drops these like weird kind of hints where like you don't know that he's like a killer, but there's obviously something wrong with him. There are other moments where like he meets the other woman at the bar. This is much later after you've seen him do other things, but he just has like her blonde hair in his hand. Yeah, that was a and good he's cut. he's toying with it. Yeah. That was a good cut. There's a lot of ways that Mary Heron avoids being super like in your face with the violence. It still implies like a lot of violence she doesn't shy away from violence and she definitely goes for it in certain scenes but she also doesn't dwell on it in a way and i think this movie having a female point of view both from two female writers and then the female director you really feel especially in the scenes of violence like with the prostitutes like you really feel their horror and you don't feel like even though the sex scenes are like somewhat explicit like you don't feel like oh, we're just doing a hot scene with some naked ladies now. You're always kind of like with the women and understanding like their horror in those scenes so that it doesn't put you in the like seat of you're Patrick Bateman and you're having fun doing all this. In that way, I think this movie is filmmaking on the level of Hitchcock, but I think the female perspective of it elevates that above what Hitchcock would have done. Because I really do think like, 
like the richness of the perspectives in this, especially like in terms of the sex workers reticence (laughs) to like have anything to do with him because they know he's trouble on site. Because people who do sex work have to develop that kind of, you know, sixth sense for what a client might be like. But having to, like, do it anyway because they need the money, it's just very layered and nuanced in a way that I don't think really any male director or writer would have been able to pull off. I really like the woman who plays the sex worker, Christy. Yeah, she's I do great. too. She's yeah. phenomenal. I only know her from Adaptation. She's, like, Charlie's oh. girlfriend or wants to be girlfriend i forgot yeah. if they're actually dating i just really liked that you think that a, a prostitute really wouldn't have any character in a movie like this but i felt like she gave a really good performance and you could feel her hesitance to like go with this guy but she needs the money and he's got the money and r.i.p <laughs> yeah her name's Kerosene Seymour. Her scenes are combined from a few different, like, I think she's different characters in the book, but they they wanted there to be a victim that you get to Mm -hmm. know a little bit more so that you're, like, it's less anonymous. And and yeah, she gets, I mean, probably the most visceral scene of this movie is him chasing her naked with a chainsaw, which is just (laughs) so, like, horrifying, but also, like, as done here, just feels... Like, such a metaphor for, yeah. like, being a woman, basically, mm-hmm. or, you know, like... She knocks on every door in his in his floor, but nobody answers the door. There's nobody listening. Yeah. This movie's filled with famous people <laughs> that I was really not is. expecting from Jared Leto, Chloe Sevigny, Reese Witherspoon... Matt Ross, who's Gavin Belson on Silicon Valley. He is great in this movie. Um, Matt Ross has... In this movie, the all-time worst haircut I've ever seen on a man in a movie. Yeah. (laughs) It's pretty powerful. And I know it must be on purpose that it's bad, because he's like a dweeb in the movie. He's a gay dweeb in the movie. Right, but dear God, (laughs) that haircut. (laughs) Yeah, that's going to have to be one of our pictures with the post, because it's powerful. It is really funny, the scene where Patrick is kind of about to kill him, and then... uh, (laughs) That character thinks he's being seduced instead. And like Patrick is so horrified that Mm -hmm. like it's like he's more horrified by this character than he is by anything that he's done Mm -hmm. himself. God, Patrick, why here? I've seen you looking at me. I've noticed your hot body. <laughs> Don't be shy. You can't imagine how long I've wanted this ever since that Christmas party at Arizona 206. You know, the one you were wearing that red striped paisley on Monty Tye. I want you. I want you too. Patrick! What is it? Where are you going? I've got to return some videotapes. Yeah, he's like, he's already been mortified by this character at multiple points throughout the movie. And like the guy, I think at one point, isn't he the one who has the better business card than him? Yeah. Yeah. Like he's the guy who beats him at business cards. That's why he's going to kill him. Yeah. (laughs) It didn't feel like to me, like, ew, gay people. Like, it felt, I don't know, like, it didn't rub me the wrong way. No, No, not at all. It's not about that. What Patrick is horrified by is, like, being seen. 
He's like, that's kind of the one person who kind of sees him and gets away with it. Well, and like someone like I, he's afraid of the stigma that will come with like he's afraid of other people seeing him as gay because he wants so badly to be this kind of alpha male and to like be like he says at that one point, like, I want to fit in. And that's something that doesn't fit in. So he's like horrified by the idea that he could be kind of like tainted by this other person. And or see like the guy sees like is is assuming like oh you're you're hitting on me mm-hmm. well and and in that moment in the scene patrick's approaching him from behind so he literally doesn't see him until he turns around and like does what he thinks is returning patrick's affections and right but i but i mean like the guy he thinks oh my god you think i'm gay like everyone thinks i'm not this like heterosexual like power you know like right. alpha right. whatever um, and he just feels immediately, like, insecure. Well, and I think it's also because, like, this is another character who's living a double life in a way because yeah. he no. is having to hide who he really is. And seeing this other character, he's it's like he does see that Patrick is hiding his mm-hmm. true self. He just kind of misinterprets what that true self is that he's hiding. But I think, yeah, there is a moment of recognition there that, like, freaks him out. But the way that he plays it, it's so funny it's so and like because patrick literally flees the scene he literally like runs out of there like a little boy with his tail between his legs like it's really funny it's the only scene where patrick seems afraid of another person like he's (laughs) always in control and yet he seems terrified of this like harmless gay man because Yeah. yeah again a very funny satire of the way that straight men are often afraid of being associated with anything gay so they're like oh my god no that's not me like let me flee out of here what I found very funny, and I wonder what it means, is all the photo frames in Patrick's house are empty. Like, there's frames on the wall, but they're empty. Except that there's a Les Mis poster <laughs> yeah, above the that's toilet. Really funny. <laughs> and he name drops Les Mis. Like, but I was just like, why Les Mis? Maybe he actually really likes Les Mis. <laughs> I think it's like, because it was just so trendy at the time. Is like, it's yes. the ultimate, like, thing. Yes. That, like, yeah. I was just like, I guess he's, I guess the rest are just empty because... He doesn't have any family. Yeah. To like even fake no like, friends, no memories. Yeah. Yeah. But he has Lee Miss. <laughs> I love that this movie features ass eating set to the dynamic sounds of Phil Collins' Susudio. <laughs> the serious version of that point is I love the soundtrack of this movie. It's something I, all right. I also love the score. Like, this movie has a lot of really great intentional music drops, but the score is also, I think, like, really kind of forward-looking and seems a lot more like the kind of score that would be in a, more like a serious drama nowadays. Yeah, this movie, I mean, I think it beat a lot of things to the punch about being nostalgic for the 80s not nostalgic is maybe not quite the right word because it's (laughs) you know more of a send-up of it but now i think like you could see a lot of movies and i'm sure there are a lot of movies that like name drop all this like 80s stuff but this one was doing so quite ahead of its time i really like the opening because he's talking about how much attention he pays to the outside of himself you know like he's so obsessed with his appearance and just like you hear these monologues that he's delivering where he's talking about being kind of empty inside but it just made me think that like part of what he's doing in like killing people and like cutting them up is like trying to see what's inside a person because he has nothing inside himself it's interesting he eats their brains 
Does he? He mentions in his confession. He mentions he, that. Like, I love that it's an aside and we never see it. He's like, well, so I ate their brains. <laughs> he's very, he's <laughs> very like, wishy-washy about it. <laughs> Which I thought was a really interesting choice to make him be like, yeah. I also did this. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, we're at it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Paul Allen. I killed Paul Allen with an axe in the face. His body is dissolving in a bathtub in Hell's Kitchen. I don't want to leave anything out here. I guess I've killed maybe 20 people. Maybe 40. Uh, I have uh, tapes of a lot of it. Uh, Some of the girls have seen the tapes. I even... um... I ate some of their brains. And I tried to cook a little. Tonight, I, uh, <laughs> I just had <laughs> to kill a lot of people, and, um, I'm not sure I'm going to get away with it this time. So, uh, I mean, oh, I guess I'm a pretty, uh, I mean, I guess I'm a pretty sick guy. So let's talk about Patrick Bateman as an icon. A star. Yeah. Like Tony Montana, like Patrick Bateman has (laughs) been adopted by certain communities. I think it's happened steadily over time, but I think mostly recently it's become more pronounced. I watched some social media, which I don't normally do. (laughs) We don't advise it as a podcast. We do not advise it unless it's ours if there it's are, our pages go ahead are a lot of like videos for how to work out like him how to do your face but are like they him being funny yes but N- they're no n- no they're not being satirical their approach to it is earnest it's funny in execution because they're silly little zoomer gen z kids trying to do patently ludicrous self-care routines but that's what's funny about it that it's but ludicrous they're distinctly and clearly not in on the joke. Chris, I didn't believe you at first. Then I watched all the TikToks and videos that you linked, and it's a thing. I'm sure it's as surprising as I'm sure it was when people first started unironically standing Tony Montana, but clearly trying to emulate Patrick Bateman. Think they like his discipline? That's no, part of that it. That is it. It's so That's a big part of it. There's a whole like movement toward being Patrick Bateman-like, and they have a few different role models like this, but like where it's not quite being an alpha male, it's called a sigma male, which is a term I just learned Mm -hmm. while doing research for this, so I'm not like an expert about it. It is like a mostly a Gen Z thing and kind of related to the whole incel culture, but like people who kind of see women as disposable, but they want women, but they're also kind of disposable and interchangeable, and they chase success in this image of kind of like physical perfection and 
money is masculinity, basically. But there's also, and thank you for sending along that that thing to read about this. You're because welcome. I have heard the term Sigma male a lot of times because I'm more online than probably either of y'all are, more terminally online <laughs> than almost anyone. So I've heard the term, but I didn't know the distinction of that from the alpha male stupid myth. And they're very much birds of a feather, but the Sigma male one is more recent. And what that's about is in the context of the alpha male mythology, you do become the most successful. You become the most socially approved. You become the most popular. But in the Sigma male, um, you remain an outcast, but you achieve the strength and the physical perfection and the desirability of the alpha male, but you still get the benefit of rejecting all of society, of rejecting friendship and community. And, you know, you just get the girls but you're still like an outlaw. So it gives you both the like ego benefit of stupid machismo, but it gives you the, the satisfaction of being not just an isolated nerd, but a nerd who doesn't have to make an effort to try to make social connections with other people who are like you and share like interests. Which is why Patrick Bateman makes sense because he's on the outside. He's like, achieving everything but on the inside he's a psychopath and i think that's kind of the idea is that like i'm secretly like a rebel even though outwardly like no one knows it it was especially hilarious watching it this time like after having read the stuff that you linked just like with scarface it's like you see people very directly misinterpreting the point very much getting not the message from the actual story that's intended by the story but it's completely understandable the straight lines of like how their thought process led them to identify with this person also leads them to not actually see what's going on with that character in any accurate way well and i think that's kind of the problem with the internet as you can clip everything and put everything in it gif and it's completely out of context mm -hmm. like do these people know that this movie was directed by a woman and written by two women have they seen the movie even if they see the movie are they really like considering the movie like they're probably not getting that it's a satire they're not thinking about the things that we've all been talking about like most of the people who probably actually like are using this like clip haven't actually seen the movie and are just taking it from like one or two scenes where patrick bateman says something cool and and seems awesome then I apply an herb mint facial mask, which I leave on for 10 minutes while I prepare the rest of my routine. I always use an aftershave lotion with little or no alcohol, because alcohol dries your face out and makes you look older. Then moisturizer, then an anti-aging eye balm followed by a final moisturizing protective lotion. There is an idea of a Patrick Bateman some kind of abstraction, but there is no real me, only an entity, something illusory. And though I can hide my cold gaze, and you can shake my hand and feel flesh gripping yours, and maybe you can even sense our lifestyles are probably comparable, I simply am not there. Patrick Bateman in the translucent raincoat holding the axe back laughing splattered head to toe with blood. That's like a meme. That's like its own meme. Mm -hmm. There are like multiple things from this movie that have just become their own kind of memes. I love that about what the internet has become, but it's also really made opportunities for a lot of sociopathic, neurotic 
tendencies, especially among men, especially among disaffected young men. It's weird. And it was illuminating and kind of sad in a way rewatching this movie now. But I also think, if anything, it's made it even more effective and incisive in my eyes because it's like, yeah, we're still dealing with these same kind of neurotic tendencies among people who are completely disaffected from reality. I watched like five videos of those. I didn't watch very many. I watched five. Um, And like (laughs) two of them were American Psycho, whatever I sent. Then there was a video about a professional Viking catapulting himself. Then there was something else about a bodybuilder. And then it was a Trump speech. Oh, God. (laughs) And it's exactly what happens is like they're associating this image of Patrick Bateman and this image of success that is meant to be satirical. But then it gets associated with Trump and it just like becomes part of this stew of this is a man who defies the rules of society and succeeds. It was really disturbing. This movie mentions the Trump family twice. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, these characters would mention the Trump family. I think it bears repeating that like the 80s isn't just the time period that this is set in. You know, it's it's very much the setting the plate of the politics that defined not just this time, but that defines our time now. And that politics is one that's created a society that alienates people, that especially alienates men, that teaches men that their relationships with women are supposed to be just transactional, you know, and that women are just objects for men to use. It's a society and a politics that trains men to associate themselves with their jobs, you know, so like it's, it's their work that really defines who they are and proves who they are. And if the work isn't there, then they're not men anymore. It creates all these paths to train men to think that we've been emasculated or something. But really, it just trains men to disconnect themselves from what all humans need, which is like friendship and companionship and community and love. And bitches. And money and power. Yeah, the threesome scene, you see him flexing in the mirror and watching himself Mm -hmm. in the mirror. And that especially felt really relevant today Mm -hmm. because of things like OnlyFans, where (laughs) sex is more about watching yourself and showing off yourself than being with someone else. And it's even more about watching someone watching themselves. (laughs) Like, literally, the whole perspective of porn has totally changed. And it feels in a weird way like this movie is kind of predicting that in a way. Right. Yeah. Like, I think there is a whole generation who's like learned sex from watching porn because porn is so accessible on the Internet. Yes. And, you know, I've heard all kinds of things that say that's true, that, you know, that that's becoming a problem with like young men learning sex from porn. And yeah, you really see that this generation would look to him in that way as well. Also, just like the fact that he's like always talking about how he doesn't exist and how so many people are are confusing him with other people. Like that also kind of predicts, I feel like the anonymity of the internet in a way. And just like, that's why he's able to get away with everything is because he has no identifiable identity because everyone's like, oh, are you this person? Are you this person? And that also feels very like, much like an online thing of Mm. being able to act without real consequence in your life. Mm. I just noticed a difference between Patrick and Tony Montana and that like Patrick is so hidden with like who he is. Like Tony Montana is very out there and he's very himself and honest about who he is, even though he's kind of a shit and maybe he's wrong about himself, but he thinks he's being honest. And Patrick is very like hidden. And I feel like that makes him a much more like nefarious anti-hero. Like I'm disturbed by Patrick in a way that I'm not by Tony. Well, it's sounds 
to me, it feels like Tony Montana is genuine about who he is, but Patrick Bateman is putting on a performance. So that's the difference mm-hmm. for me is that Tony Montana behind closed doors probably acts exactly the same, but Patrick Bateman does not. Certainly. And yeah, and I think Tony's a more open, partial human, whereas Patrick, I think, is really on a journey of some kind, on a, on a quest to try to find himself or try to reconcile these different, what he thinks maybe are competing parts of himself. And I think what ultimately all just gets synthesized is like both realizing the truth of the person that he is and realizing the truth that the entire society in which he operates is not only never going to punish him for it, but like prizes him for what he is. There are no more barriers to cross. All I have in common with the uncontrollable and the insane, the vicious and the evil, all the mayhem I have caused and my utter indifference toward it. I have now surpassed. My pain is constant and sharp, and I do not hope for a better world for anyone. In fact, I want my pain to be inflicted on others. I want no one to escape. But even after admitting this, there is no catharsis. My punishment continues to elude me and I gain no deeper knowledge of myself. No new knowledge can be extracted from my telling. This confession has meant nothing. Well, I will briefly mention American Psycho 2. Electric Boogaloo. (laughs) Uh, I watched a a clip or two. Wow. (laughs) Not... Not a worthy successor to American Psycho. I still can't believe that was real. But for the fact that one of the things you linked was from (laughs) movieclips.com, I literally thought it was a college humor video or like a funny or die skit. It was pretty bad. (laughs) What was she, like 14 in that movie? I mean, it had to be over after 2000. So it was not like she was probably in... That 70s show. Yeah, but she started. This had to be direct to video. This had to be direct to video. Like, okay. So the script was not connected to American Psycho originally. There was a script. (laughs) And in fact, they didn't decide it was American Psycho 2 until they were already filming the movie. She has a young girl. This is Mila Kunis, by the way. She plays the successor to Patrick Bateman, because why wouldn't she? So strange. She, as a little girl, is attacked by Patrick Bateman, and so she's the one who kills him and then grows up to be a psycho. Wait, she kills him? Yes. With with his face off screen, right? I'm sure Christian Bale is not in this film, so I, I don't know how they filmed it. Not a real sequel. If you'll excuse us, we have a reservation at Dorcia, and we have to return some videos beforehand. <laughs> On the next episode of When We Were Young. Back streets, back, all right, we're doing boy bands. Is it all right, though? Is it all right? <laughs> we're going to be talking about NSYNC, Backstreet Boys, all for one, question mark, maybe? Is that a boy band? 98 Degrees. Five. Five? Five. Oh, that's a band? Yes. Oh, wow. We have a lot of research to do. There's a lot. (laughs) We haven't started researching yet. (laughs) The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you get your podcast product. Rate and review us on those platforms so that more people hear the show. And contribute to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash when we were young so we can continue bringing you episodes for free. I have been Seth. I'm Becky. 
and I like to dissect girls. Did you know I'm utterly insane? Everybody's searching for a hero. People need someone to look up to. I never found anyone who fulfilled my needs. A lonely place to be. And so I learned. 